would say one of the biggest risks that we face is the silencing of in-group moderates and apathy and disengagement from large portions of the public and also people in leadership positions. Because when those people exit the scene, you lose those credible voices that can speak to people who might otherwise be mobilized to support violence. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Well, I suppose I've got to do it. I've got to give you an update on the impeachment proceedings and tell you a little bit about what I think. Look, the news changes from day to day. I'm recording this a good bit before you're hearing it. So who knows what else we will have found out by the time you're hearing this. But I think the two basic important facts are very unlikely to change. The first basic important fact is that Donald Trump directed some of his most senior aides to pressure Ukraine for his own political gain. He used the powers of his office in order to make sure he gets re-elected by getting a foreign power to investigate one of his likely domestic political opponents. That does look to me like a high crime and misdemeanor, like an obvious abuse of his office. At the same time, the thing that I had always feared and warned about with impeachment seems to be happening to some extent, which is that Americans' minds are so made up in what they think about Donald Trump. More importantly, that the appeal of Donald Trump is that he is a brawler who doesn't care about the rules and just fights for his own team, or perhaps more accurately, himself. In any case, that the Watergate effect does not appear to be happening. A lot of ordinary Americans thought that Richard Nixon was an honorable man and were deeply shocked to find out what he said in the privacy of the Oval Office, what kind of actions he was complicit with. Nobody, whether they like Donald Trump or not, is very much surprised about anything we have learned regarding him in the last weeks or are likely to learn in the next months. So Donald Trump has abused the powers of his office in a blatant way. The institutions of American democracy are unlikely to provide us with redress. The most important thing is and remains for Democrats to beat Donald Trump at the polls in 2020. Today I am joined by a really wonderful scholar and activist called Rachel Brown. Rachel is the founding executive director of Over Zero, and she is one of the leading experts trying to think about the roots of polarization and political violence and how we might be able to intervene in political systems to make sure that these deep political divides don't turn into murder and bloodshed. We had a really wonderful probing conversation about all of the different mechanisms that are at play in putting countries at risk of political violence, in trying to think about whether it makes sense to think of the United States as being in danger of that kind of political violence today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you very much. As I understand it, a lot of your work, and you're doing a lot of very concrete work, which we can talk about a bit, is really motivated by the fear that the extent and the depth of polarization we have in the United States at the moment 
might actually lead to political violence. And you've worked previously in Uganda and Kenya in different contexts in which uh, you've seen that process play out. So I wonder whether to some distance that'll just sound implausible. I mean, of course, there are extreme people who carry out horrible politically motivated shootings and so on. But what you're talking about is really mass-scale political violence of a kind of different form. I mean, why should we worry that this is a realistic danger in the American context right now to begin with? So from my perspective, and the reason that I felt that it was very important to do work in the United States... The problem isn't that we can predict, oh, there will be violence tomorrow. The problem is that we know what the risk factors for violence are. And on several very important risk factors, we are seeing very negative trend lines in the United States. So in the level of polarization, and, and not just the level, but really the type, the qualitative type of polarization that we have in the U.S. has shifted in a way that increases risk of violence. So I get why the more polarized the society is, the bigger the danger that violence might break out. I get that. What is the type of polarization? It's a qualitative question. What is the type of polarization yeah. that's healthy and that's fine, that's right. a normal part of a political system where in a democracy people mobilize and they say, I'm going to do better than the current government and come out and vote. And it's really important, you know, the cliche political line, this is the most important election in, in our <laughs> lifetimes, right? And when does it actually right. become dangerous. Right, because a level of polarization, you need it for a healthy society, right? An unpolarized society is not a healthy society. It has censorship. I think where there's cause for concern, and again, what I advocate for is to understand that these are risk factors for violence, and we'd rather intervene as far upstream as we possibly can. It only becomes more difficult to intervene. The type of polarization that we have has shifted from issue-based polarization to identity-based polarization. And this is a really important shift. This means we go from arguing about issues that are for the good of the collective, that are for the good of society as a whole, or at least thinking that that's what we're doing. And we go from this me versus you we're arguing context to being polarized based on I don't like you because you're on the other side. So a lot mm -hmm. of research right now shows that we're actually more polarized in terms of how negatively we feel about someone who's on the other side of the aisle than how much we actually disagree on issues. And there's a lot of reasons why that qualitative shift is particularly dangerous. So you're saying, look, you know, if I want, I'm trying to think of a very big, important policy, you know, I think we should go to war with another country. Mm -hmm. And you think we shouldn't go to war with another country. That seems like a very big question, right? But if you're saying we have very different ideas about that, but we still say, for example, I wouldn't have a problem if my child marries somebody from the other side of a political aisle, mm -hmm. then we have less reason to worry. But in a situation like at the moment, we actually ask people about healthcare, and it turns out most Americans have relatively similar views on healthcare, have relatively similar views on even gun control. There's a few people at the extremes, but most people are somewhere in the middle. But because they think, oh, if you're on the other side, then you're evil, then you're really bad, then I don't want my child marrying you, that's much more dangerous. Right, because it changes the dynamic of competition. We're not debating about issues that are going to affect or benefit society as a whole. And you can make a lot of arguments about our history and the varying degrees to which our democracy has been inclusive and which that conversation has included all. But there is a fundamental shift when it becomes about my team winning rather than about an issue at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think what when we look at the context right now, what we see is we see a very high-stakes competition. We see this feeling that the, the game is high-stakes, whether it's election, whether it's impeachment, whether it's any policy issue, the stakes feel very high. But the dynamics of play are really of team sports. If my team wins, your team loses. If your team wins, my team loses. This type of zero-sum competition ratchets up the stakes, and it leads to a context in which I'm willing to accept things that my team does wrong if it means that we're going to win. And I might be less likely to speak up about things that I'm not okay with within my team because I want to make sure we win and I want to maintain my sense of belonging, sort of. 
When I think about polarization, I think in the first instance about how much, how intensely does my group hate your group? And you were just alluding to something else, which is intriguing, which is that, no, it's in part about can you disagree with your own group in some kind of way? What's the importance of that? And has there been a negative trend line on that as well? So let me start from a little bit of a different place to get at this particular question. We are all hardwired to belong. We're wired for belonging. We are, as humans, very social creatures. I, I won't survive. You like throw me out in the wild. I'm not going to survive for very long. And we're actually physiologically wired in a lot of ways to make sure that we maintain a sense of belonging. And that means we're wired for groups. We're wired to find belonging in groups. And when we're part of a group, we care about that group surviving. We care about protecting that group. But we also care about maintaining our status and belonging in that group. So we're mm -hmm. going to go along with what we perceive to be the norms and the rules of that group. And when two things happen at the same time in the United States, where one, we've become more polarized based on our partisan identities, and two, at the same time and because of this zero-sum competition, the other side is seen as a threat. There's a narrative of threat all around, and this includes speech that's also targeting different minority groups in society. And so within this context of threat and the feeling that my group is under attack, I become more bonded to my group. And it becomes much harder for me to speak out when my group says something that's not okay, for me to go against the norms of my group. So let's speak perhaps in a slightly more concrete context. So we have a lot of mutual polarization. One group thinks the other group is terrible. So that's already bad. That gives you the basic makings of political conflict of a very severe kind. Now there's a contested election and some very visible members of group one start saying, you know what, we should just go and beat them up. I guess at that point, it really matters whether everybody falls into line and says, if I disagree, then I'm going to be cast out from this group and lose all of the benefits that come with being some member to be a group of, or whether it's a situation where they feel empowered to say, no, hang on a second, it is high stakes, the other group is terrible, but perhaps we shouldn't beat them up. We should wait for the outcome of what the Supreme Court says or whatever it is. When we look at context of violence, a sort of textbook thing that happens always early on is that some of the first people to be targeted aren't the group that's being othered and targeted, whether if we look in the U.S. that's, that's across the political aisle or whether that's different minority groups. It is what we would call in-group moderates, people within the group that are standing up and saying, I don't think that we should do this. A very classic example, if we want to go to an extreme, right, is the Rwandan genocide, where some of the earliest people to be targeted very violently, but also in terms of the speech and the rhetoric, were moderate Hutus who were standing up against the violence. Those in-group moderates are extraordinarily threatening because they're a potentially credible group that could reach perpetrators and show them you can keep your group identity, you can keep your grievances, you can keep all of these things, but you don't need to resort to violence. And actually, that's not okay, and we're not going to do that. So not having studied the Rwandan genocide in that much detail, so what happened? So there are some people who were Hutus who were saying, hey, we should not be violent towards the Tutsis. And how were they punished? What happened to them? So moderate Hutu leaders who were pro-peace agreement that had happened before the genocide were killed very early on. They were targeted specifically. But also on the radio broadcasts, which are quite famous for how much they dehumanized and targeted Tutsis using the metaphor of cockroaches, for example. Those broadcasts also broadcast to moderate Hutus or Hutus who might stand up against the militias and say, I don't want to participate in violence or might save people exactly what would happen to them. And this was a violent consequence. Were they to do that? And they're called traitors and not real Hutus. And we see these narratives across different contexts. You're a traitor to your own group. You're not really one of us if you're standing up for that other group. Because the narratives that go along with violence are narratives of threat. I always say no one's ever the aggressor. The narrative that mobilizes a group to violence is always 
they are a threat to us. That other group is somehow an existential threat to our security, to our rules, to our way of life, to our purity. Very common to say they're coming to rape our women and children. And with that comes a protection narrative. Don't you want to protect our group? And so if you're an in-group moderate, then you are in some way even worse because even for you a member of our group, you are willing to see our women and children get raped and killed. Wait, don't you have any empathy? Don't you care about our group? Another narrative is that group's already guilty. They've already done horrible, bad things. And that whole group is responsible. Don't you want to make things right? And if you're not willing to, what kind of a person are you? You're a traitorous or you're really one of them or you're working on their behalf. And so those narratives, I mean, I'm talking about the extreme moments in violence, but I've worked in more downstream context, closer to violence. In, in 2015, working and, and talking with activists in Myanmar, one of the hardest things was to find credible speakers that could reach the same people that the extremist movements were reaching. And so it's really important to think early on when we start to see these dynamics, even in very early stages, play out, that we try and do something about it, because as they escalate, doors close. So to bring it back to the United States, again, obviously, very, very different context mm -hmm. from the Rwandan genocide or anything like that. I can't help thinking of some of the president's tweets against never Trumpers, mm -hmm. uh, some of the ways in which conservatives who had criticized Trump were targeted during the 2016 election. I mean, does that seem like one of the indications of dissent within a group being targeted? I think that that's a dynamic that we can look at is within our political polarization. What is the treatment of people that are disagreeing? And especially, I mean, when I look at the issues that matter to me, it's disagreeing about the type of speech that's used and the type of rhetoric that's used to describe other groups. And it's also looking at approval for violence. And I think as an early indicator, and this is really just my opinion, I think it's important to look at the willingness to go around institutions or to change or go against institutional norms and rules, because I think that that... And again, this is really, I'm, I'm just talking because we're chatting on a podcast, my opinion. I think that we can look at when does a group move towards accepting things that might not otherwise in another context be seen as acceptable? And what's the punishment for people that aren't willing to go along with that move towards further extremism? When and, yeah. you see people doing that, do they usually describe it openly or do they fool themselves about what it is? Do they say, hey, under normal circumstances, we shouldn't, I don't know, pack the Supreme Court. But given the stakes right now, it's justifiable. Or do you see that in those contexts they usually say, no, 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 this is actually legitimate? Where if your position did the same thing, they would see it as a glass half empty and say, well, this is obviously evidence that they are not willing to play by rules that would ensure a fair fight. And so we need to bring the knives out. Whereas when they themselves do it, they say, no, this is just a completely normal thing to do. Or is it that they sort of recognize that what they're doing is sort of extreme in a certain kind of way, but they say, well, look, we're so threatened by the other group, but that's just the only thing we can do. Yeah, it's such an exact example. And my instinct is to say that that sounds right. But on the research front, there's a few types of feedback loops that come into play with this type of polarization that I think describe some of the underlying dynamics there. And one of them is called, that's been researched um, by many people, including Jeremy Gingas, is this question of motive attribution asymmetry. My side is acting out of love. We just want to protect ourselves. We're just doing what it takes to protect our women and children. We don't have any other choice. Their side is acting out of hate. They're doing it because they hate us. And I think that that kind of fits the model that you just talked about, right? We're acting for the good. We can see all the reasons why we have no choice but to do this. If you're doing it, it must be malintentioned. And I think that's a really important distinction. This is the exact mechanism that political society is supposed to solve. If you go back to Thomas Hobbes' definition hmm. uh, and description of a state of nature, of the situation we were in before we had political society, it's often slightly misdescribed that the reason why Hobbes thought that 
life in a state of nature was nasty, brutish, and short in that famous quote, is because human beings are bad. And he doesn't actually think that. What he's saying is, look, you know, there we are, and I'm sort of tilling my field or trying to gather food over here, and you're doing the same over there. I know that the moment I fall asleep, you can come and kill me. You can do that even if you're a lot weaker than I am. So I have an incentive to go get a big stick in order to be able to defend myself. But of course, if the other person sees me getting a stick, they have very good reason to think, well, uh -huh. this person is about to attack me. Right. Right. And so what you call, is it motive misattribution? Yeah, motive um, attribution asymmetry or motive uh, yeah, misattribution. Yeah, so, yeah, it's yeah, so motive attribution yeah. asymmetry is the exact mechanism that drives conflict in the state of nature, according to Hobbes, and that requires political institutions to solve it. Now, that does raise the presence of political institutions. Right? What Hobbes says is, you give all the power to the sovereign, and he says, any of you kill each other, I'm going to kill you, so don't do that. And if that is a plausible enough threat, then I can see you getting a stick and not feel as threatened because I know that you don't have an incentive to kill me. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we can live peacefully together. Why does that cease working in these contexts? Is it because we are actually competing over who captures the sovereign? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. And I go back to really thinking about a system of governance as a conflict management system, right? It's meant to resolve all the different interests within a society and all the different mm -hmm. competition within a society and to do so peacefully. But when people stop buying into that system, and I think it's interesting because you can look at institutions themselves and how they function, but you can also look at the public trust in institutions and the public narrative around institutions mm. and how much people believe in a system of governance as the thing that's going to solve their problems. When that starts to erode, then you can start to see people being willing to compete in different ways and people being willing to even compete over institutions. I think with one of the things that I think is interesting and, and important for us to recognize about the type of polarization that we're seeing right now is that you see a set of incentives that says we're not just competing through our institutions to create the best policy that we care about, the best outcomes that we care about. We're actually competing about what the institutions themselves, we're willing to put the institutions on the table as a thing that's up for competition and up for grabs in this game, right? And I think that that comes along with this very zero-sum, high-stakes, sort of team sports-style competition. And it, it mirrors a lot the, the style of competition that I saw and that my colleagues described in Kenya. So part of it is about the style of competition. I guess it's also about what the consequences are. So it's, mm -hmm. it, it's sort of what is the nature of a policy, right? If you're just thinking it's about what's the tax rate going to be and are we going to have even something as important as same-sex marriage, you might say, well, okay, I'm not going to think that the other person capturing the sovereign puts me in existential danger. But narrative you hear all of the time now, and I understand how it emerges, is the idea that if a political opponent wins, then it's an existential threat to you, that you might no longer be physically safe that your community is actually in danger. And so that essentially says that I don't have a sovereign to trust that's definitely going to protect me hmm. when you come with your club. It's that we have a competition over who captures the sovereign. And if you emit competition, then that sovereign is not going to care if I'm killed. And so it is actually existential. So the sort of solution yeah. to the basic mechanism is, is no longer there. Now, you said something else that sort of intrigued me. You said there's sort of a, a variety of feedback loops mm -hmm. and that the one we've been talking about, a sort of motive attribution asymmetry, yeah. is only one of those feedback loops. So I take it that you mean sort of vicious cycles, right? Yeah. Things that are sort of self-sustaining. So, so what are the other vicious cycles or feedback loops to look out for here? So I think that there's a second feedback loop that we talked about without labeling it as such, which is that as there's sort of a, a threat environment that takes place and this type of competition, 
the incentives to go along with one's own group can really increase. And there's either a pressure to go along with, encourage, support whatever the group is saying, or just stay silent and disengage because the cost of engaging and going against your own group becomes very, very costly, hmm. right? So this is really important for a lot of reasons. And one is that it often silences voices that might have an important moderating effect, not on policies, but on the way the competition is happening, right? On these, um, the, the, the sort of willingness to, to use a different set of tools. Um, and then it further changes the norm perception, right? So that more people are willing to go along for the polarizes the conversation. Um, another thing is that um, there's something called meta perceptions, right? How do I think that that group sees me? This is a little bit similar to motive attrib mm, attribution right. asymmetry in that it's thinking about what's going on in that other side's head. So what's the difference? Motive attribution asymmetry is what do I think is your motive for action? Uh -huh. so, right, so why did you get really this Because it to defend yourself or is it to yeah. attack me? And I always think about it like we do this all the time. Like we tend to, it's fundamental attribution. I'm driving in traffic. I cut off someone. And it's because I was distracted for a minute or was having a really bad day and they flick me off and I'm like, how could you? Come on, be a little bit compassionate. Someone cuts me off and I'm like, how could you? You're trying to kill me. We tend to assume, and we do this at the level of groups, especially in competition, right? They're acting from a fundamentally different motive. And if I think that my group is acting all out of love and just trying to protect ourselves, but you're acting out of malice towards us, now I believe that the other group is fundamentally different from my own group. Meta perceptions is how do I think that you see me? Right? And so there's a reason why they hate us is a very powerful and common narrative. It also conjures up an image of threat, right? They hate us. There's research on meta dehumanization. They think we're less than human. Well, then now that leads groups to dehumanize in turn, right? So these are these vicious cycles. So I guess one difference is between intent in a moment and disposition in general. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's say that the other side does something that is potentially undermining of my interest as a group or of my feeling of safety. Now, the first level is to say, well, actually, they have some form of legitimate reason to do that, whether it's really legitimate or not, but they take themselves to be acting in self-defense or they take themselves to be acting in pursuit of some substantive value that they right. care about, right? But I say, oh, they must really be doing that because they're about to attack me in some kind of way, right? right? So that's the first level. And then it seems to me there's a second level, which is more about disposition, which is that, you know, if I think, well, these are decent people who have a generally decent opinion of me, when I say, well, why do they do this? Well, you know, perhaps they'll attack me, but, you know, perhaps they won't, or perhaps they're just sort of angry right at this moment. But if I then also have this, this meta-perception that those people have always hated me, right? They don't see me as human at all. That makes it even more plausible that they're about to attack me and that this isn't a moment of aberration, that this is just one, as the Founding Fathers would have put it, of a long train of abuses <laughs> which have a purpose of subjugating me, right? Well, and all seek to create this atmosphere of threat, right? That group is threatening to our group and that feeds back into that sort of protection narrative that if they hate us, if they don't see us as human, how can we expect them to act towards us? And it just reinforces there's also issues start to get moralized. We see all these features come online that you kind of have to now intervene in these feedback loops in order to even get back to the point to say, what is the fundamental thing that we're disagreeing on? You were talking about these values getting entrenched. Is that another feedback loop? What is the significance uh, of that? There's some research, and this comes out of the social psychology field, on sacred values and this idea that values can become sacralized. And the research around how this happens is a bit newer, but it's this idea, and there's the thought that this happens when, in context where groups are under threat, but that certain values become so sacred that you absolutely can't trade off on them. So hmm. even somebody offering to say, 
are you willing to compromise on this value and this can become an issue or something like that is offensive to you, right? You're like, how could you offer? And I, I always think of the sort of the non-sacred value is like, I'm an Orioles fan, but there's an amount of money that you could pay me to go to Yankee Stadium and get on TV wearing a Yankees jersey. Hopefully no one in my family listens to this. Right? Like that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's not something I won't trade off on. But there are things, and we all have lots of sacred values. If you ask somebody, you know, like, how much can I pay you for your child, right? That's an offensive ask. Like, mm. they wouldn't even take you seriously. But if somebody actually asked you that, you'd be so incredibly offended. And it's actually processed in a different part of our brain that registers rules rather than compromise. And, you know, the research suggests that in conflict, these certain values and issues can become sacralized, mm. where it's not possible to start by talking about them. And in the U.S., I think this hasn't really been tested. And I think that it's, it's a fruitful area to start to look at, are there certain values that have become sacralized and some of these different issues that have become very wedge issues? And how does that inform how we can talk about and approach them? I mean, I'm trying to think of what an example might be. Might it be that for some Americans, and probably not that large a percentage of them, I imagine, but say for the most hardcore members of the NIA, gun regulation might be some of that, right? Where, where for a lot of people, it's a question of trade-offs, where it's like, look, I understand the need for the state not to be overly intrusive in people's mm -hmm. lives and what we can purchase, what we can store at their homes. But at the same time, it's this huge security concern. And so we need to find a reasonable way of trading off between those important competing public policy goals. But there's other people who are saying, no, 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 my right to bear arms is a sacred value. And if you're trying to trade it off against some bad person doing something, which I feel bad about, then that's impugning on my sacred value. And I'm not going to even enter this conversation. Is that an example? Right. Probably a little less conscious than that, but if I had to guess what values might be sacralized in the U.S., that would certainly be something that I would guess about. What's a value on the left that has become sacralized in a similar way? Is there something on the left that wasn't sacralized 10, 20 years ago and but now would be sacred in that way? Well, it's hard to say because you actually would want to do like some survey testing to find out. And I think it's a really fruitful area for research. But I would guess that any issue that's become a wedge issue, if you look at guns, abortions, and probably if you look at certain policy proposals and issues around immigration, I would guess that you might see secret values on both sides of the aisle. But again, I don't know. Right? That's, right? that's a total guess. And I, I think it's a really fruitful and important area to start your research and look because it means that you would take a slightly different approach. Immigration, I think, seems like an interesting candidate for that, where I think for most Americans, how much immigration we should have, and to some extent, what kind of immigration we should have, or we should have more high-skill immigration or more family-based immigration, more employment-based immigration or more family-based immigration, mm -hmm. is a question of trade-offs. It's sort of, you know, we want to be an open country, we want to have people being able to come and join our nation, but we also want to look after the interests of people who are already here. And it's a question of how to balance those things, asking questions about what kind of immigration will most benefit our country. And then I think there's a different way of thinking about it, which is to say, no, 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 thinking about it in those terms is itself offensive, right? We should just have a, an open border or we should at least say that we might shift from one kind of visa category to another visa category is offensive because it's dehumanizing to the people who would want to come in, right? So, so that seems like another area where we might have that. Right. And again, there are sacred values that we don't think about all the time because they're not coming under threat, because no one's asking you if they can buy your child, for example. And again, I would say that the dynamics of polarization that we have, and it's been interesting because, again, I worked in Kenya for a long time, and around our last election cycle, I heard from my Kenyan colleagues, like, this doesn't look like what we thought your country looked like, right? Like, and we started analyzing how much it looked in many ways, like a Kenyan election where you're competing on voting blocks. And I think another element that contributes to that in the U.S. is this social sorting where we've seen political parties align with other sort of demographic features in our landscape. And I think 
it becomes really important when the partisan political identity starts to become sort of the most salient identity for a lot of people and the mm. one that they'll sort of act on and where that's sort of the lens that they're filtering different things through rather than maybe a faith identity or something like that. Instead, if you start to get these identities bundled together and identities become much more singular and rigid and you lose those sort of cross-cutting ties, that's another, I think, dynamic that's really important to recognize. And I think, and that presumably yeah. makes it much easier to perceive other people as a threat, which is to say that if my four or five really important identities are that I'm a Unitarian and I'm a soccer player mm -hmm. and I'm a Democrat, then I might say, well, you know, I really prefer Democrats to Republicans and I think Republicans are generally, you know, not great people. But you know what? When I go to services, about 50% of the people around me are Republicans and we're part of the same community and we like each other, we see each other once a week or so. And so when I'm really angry at Republicans and start to think that all bad people who want to do bad things to me, I say, well, but, but what about, you know, Jim and Tanya at church, right? And now we have this sort of sorting where people might still say my three big identities are that I'm, you know, into sports and I'm, you know, a Unitarian and I'm a Democrat. But because of the city I live in, all the people I do sports with have similar political views to me. And because religion has become politicized in all kinds of ways, all the people I go to church with are also Democrats. And so suddenly, when I, I watch the impeachment hearings or something like that, I can no longer say, well, actually, I know people who are on the other side of the aisle and some of them are decent. It's much easier to engage in all of the other kind of feedback loops and mechanisms you are talking about. Yeah. And then the other piece of that, too, is that even if now you are going to services and sitting next to somebody that's from a different political party, suddenly because that's the most salient identity, your cross-cutting ties assumes less importance, right? So when we start to see the breaking down of those cross-cutting ties, I think that's also really important. This is an interesting thing about this moment, I think, but I'm starting to feel pressure that if somebody's on the other side of a political aisle, we should not be friends with them, right? I mean, if you're friends with somebody who's a Trump voter, then there's something wrong with you. And now I feel some of that pressure from within myself as well, right? I mean, I think what Donald Trump is doing is terrible and people who are voting for him are making a grave moral mistake. And it's hard to ignore that, certainly if you were to have an intimate friendship with somebody. But that seems to be exactly the dynamic you're talking about, where suddenly the fact that the political cleavage is more important than all the others makes it hard to have the kinds of friendship with people on the other side that might then come in in a saving way when there's danger of political conflict. So what's interesting, too, on this sort of identity piece is that when we see areas where people have really resisted violence, it's often through the use of a cross-cutting identity. So to go back to the Rwanda example, the Muslim community in Rwanda included Hutu and Tutsi, and it was a very salient identity for a lot of reasons. It was a very marginalized community. They were able to set norms of what it meant to be a good Muslim mm -hmm. that had to do with not participating in the genocide and saving victims. And as a community, not just as individuals who resisted, which you have examples of that all over the country, but you had an entire community coordinating together mm. to save lives and resist and not participate in a genocide. And you see that across different examples that these cross-cutting identities can, when they're made salient in moments of conflict, serve as vehicles to set really positive norms. To go back to what we were talking about earlier about the in-group pressures, and even what we're talking about now, often when you get to these extremes, people feel like, I didn't have a choice but to participate. I didn't have a choice 
choice but to go along with it. And what you see when you look at these case studies of resistance and of people, and especially where you see whole groups mobilizing through an identity, is that you see this assertion and this realization that there is agency. In. And it's a common narrative, too. We're not bad people. We don't have any choice because that other group is such a threat, but to be violent towards them, to commit genocide. We had no other choice but to do this. Um, and so you see this relinquishing of moral agency. And I think that that identity piece and how singular and rigid our identities is, is really critical component. So that's starting to give me a good picture of a kinds of social preconditions of when violence might actually become an option. Now, I still want to understand two things. The first is whether the institutions we have aren't sufficient protection against all of that. And then the second is, what kind of work might we do in order to make it as likely? But to ask a skeptical question, first of all. So we were talking about, I'm over here with my stick and you're over there with your stick. And that's a really scary situation. But then we get a Leviathan, we get a sovereign. And that sovereign tells each of us, if you go and kill the other person, you're going to get into real trouble. Um, so don't do it. And so suddenly my incentive shifts. And I'm like, well, okay, the risk of me being killed by you when there's a credible sovereign is way less than the likelihood that I'll be put in jail or executed if I try to kill you first. Don't we have that? I mean, for all of the legitimate fears about the views of Donald Trump and his associations, his unwillingness to denounce white supremacists at various points in his presidency, if a bunch of people gang up and beat up people going door to door in order to canvass for Democrats, or if they start rioting in some kind of way. I mean, we do still have, and I'm, I'm very worried about the way in which the Trump administration has undermined the independence of the Department of Justice and so on. But it still seems to me very obvious that if you went to engage in that kind of political violence today, there would be a reasonably speedy by world standards and fair trial that ensures that you wind up going to jail. Doesn't that provide enough protection against this dynamic? So I'm actually going to answer sort of your two questions at once, because the approach, and we've just written a paper. I always ask will, two questions at once. This is yeah, one of the features of this But I can here. answer both of them at once, you, you, so it's not special. And we actually have a paper coming out on this, because I think the really critical thing, again, I'm not saying that the U.S. is where Myanmar was in 2015. That's not the point of comparison. The question is, we know what different risk factors are for violence and where are our trend lines going. And one that we didn't talk so much about is this sort of dangerous rhetoric. I outlined what some of those features of speech are, and we talked about it in the context of polarization. But one of the biggest reasons I started working in the U.S. was seeing the targeting of different minority groups, of Muslims, of immigrants, et cetera, with that type of speech. And I think that the polarization enables that speech to take on a greater life because people are willing to go along with their group. But to get to your question, the way that we've approached this paper and the way that I would approach all of this is saying we have a lot of sources of resilience to large-scale political violence and large-scale group-targeted violence, even though we also have a large history of group-targeted violence, which is another risk factor, by the way. But we have a lot of sources of resilience to things getting worse right now, right, if we're looking at the overall trend line of violence. And the question is, how do we protect those sources of resilience? Because we see hmm. these negative trend lines. And so this protecting the independence of a Department of Justice is, really is all the more important precisely because you need people to have a confidence to know. Exactly. And precisely because we start to have incentives at play where people are maybe willing to sacrifice an institution if it means that their team can get ahead. right? And precisely because we have the type of dangerous rhetoric that might make it more likely that someone feels emboldened and feels like they have moral authority and other people that agree with them when they go out and they commit a mass shooting against a minority group. And so there's a ton of different dynamics at play here. But the approach that we advocate 
is just really recognizing that the risks that we see in the U.S. right now, we don't want these trend lines to be going in a negative direction. We don't want this type of speech in our public political discourse the way that it is and the way that it emboldens different action and creates impunity. We don't want this type of polarization. It's not only bad for the long-term risk it creates for violence, it's bad for our institutions and bad for our ability to make policies and to solve problems together. And we can be worried about any attacks on our institutions or backsliding of institutions because that is really, if you look at all the rankings and the different trend lines, that's still probably where we're, we're strongest. So the question really is, where are the sources of resilience in society, and how do you bolster those? Hmm. How do you protect them where they're at right now, and how do you improve upon them, right? How do you build from what's there? So I would really advocate for an asset-based approach, but I also think that the reason to think about it in these terms, and the point isn't to be alarmist and tell people, go be scared tomorrow. The point is, we can do something, right? We see these negative trends. We know where that leads left unchecked. In a long period of time, we can do something about so, it so, now. So what are these assets? So one, like we just talked about, is protecting our institutions and protecting from institutional backsliding. A second really important thing, and that we've proposed in this paper as well, is looking at in-group norms. And this is actually where I would say we can think about a really big risk factor right now at this very upstream stage where we see ourselves. We talked about in-group moderates. We talked about the shaping of norms and the within-group pressures. And do people feel and see that they actually do have agency and choice and responsibility for the actions that they take in this moment? I would say one of the biggest risks that we face in terms of a loss of resilience is the silencing of in-group moderates and apathy and disengagement from large portions of the public and also people in leadership positions that just say, this is a little too tricky. This has gotten too dicey. Because when those people exit the scene, you lose those credible voices that can speak to people who might otherwise be mobilized to support violence. And you lose those credible voices that can push things in a different direction. So that work of shaping in-group norms is really critical. Activating existing and creating new cross-cutting identities is really important. I gave the example of the Muslim community in Rwanda. Another example I love is the city of Tusla in Bosnia, where people lived and worked peacefully throughout the war because they set norms of what it meant to be Tuslan. And the mayor worked with civic associations, and they really supported each other in this to manage tensions and to use this cross-cutting identity to set norms, even in an extreme context. So what does it look like in the U.S. to activate leaders that are able to speak to these cross-cutting identities? Or you see all different movements and things like that that are starting to bring people together under new brands and movement identities. And then the other thing is that there already is a level of violence happening. So how do we understand what our community is doing to heal and repair? What is their experience? What have they learned about what needs to be done? And driving support to those communities that have already been targeted or affected with violence so that violence doesn't have its intended impact of disenfranchising, silencing, removing people from the political. So that's really interesting because you said something that I think slightly surprised me and may have surprised some of the listeners, which is to say that most of the work when it comes to conflict prevention or violence prevention, tends to be between groups. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, the context of Israel-Palestine, the sort of stereotypical NGO work is like, let's get some young Palestinians and some young Israelis together and have them hang out together and talk to each other. And that way they sort of stop dehumanizing each other and come to understand each other's narratives. And next generation will have more mutual understanding and Kumbaya, wonderful. And you didn't emphasize that so much. You emphasized much more the work within particular groups, or work which might include people from both groups, but that isn't about that, where you actually don't talk to them as, here are the Palestinians, here are the Israelis, you talk to them about something completely different. So what does that look like? I mean, how can we, as somebody who in some ways is, is an in-group moderate, this is not entirely far from my own thoughts on a daily basis, when I 
sometimes stray from my tribe on Twitter or elsewhere. I certainly get beaten up a fair share of my time. How can you strengthen my position? How can you strengthen in-group moderates? I think there's a few different pieces there. And I just want to really emphasize the one thing that you brought up. I think we really do tend to think about intergroup work. But if you do the intergroup work without doing the intragroup work to bring groups along, you've just had people leave their groups. Right. Or they've lost status and standing. It's really important to do that with in-group work. It's also really hard because the risk of being socially ostracized and excluded from your own group, that's really scary. And, and isn't I, that I a story? I don't know if you told me this or heard of somewhere else about the peace process in Northern Ireland where something like that happened, where they brought people mm-hmm. together before the attempt that succeeded, mm-hmm. that brought leaders from the Protestant and Catholic community mm-hmm. together and they spent a lot of time together and they actually developed real understanding for each other and then they went back with a plan that everybody immediately rejected because they <laughs> were just way ahead of where the, the groups had actually moved. I don't think I'm the one who told you that, but it's another great example of the same thing. So we can think about the within-group work as setting and shaping norms because we care about the norms for our own group, right? If I see myself as solidly in one group, I actually don't want to abide by the norms of that Mm. other group, right? Right. That's going to make me look bad or be painted as one of them. And I always think about middle schoolers, right? They want the norms of their peers, not their parents or the Mm. other clique. And so those within-group norms really, really matter. And what we have to remember is that the norms that we act on are the norms that we perceive, right? What we think everybody else is thinking or saying or doing. And this is a really important point because our perception isn't necessarily accurate. It's often shaped by very loud voices. And in a variety of subjects, from binge drinking to drug use, etc., people tend to overestimate negative behaviors. And you can see with the type of rhetoric how it's very easy for a few loud voices to start to paint a norm for a group and how, as other groups speak out, are silenced, that norm shifts even further. So the really important thing, if you want to think about within-group moderates and their ability to shape norms, it's going to be very hard for someone to go it alone. The question is, how do you start to build coalitions? And how do you build peer groups where people are trying to do this so that they can learn from each other? But I think one of the really important things is that people are able to do that as a group. And you can think about those within group norm setters. You can think about who are sort of the key leaders and how do you create a scaffolding around them sort of more behind the scenes in an quieter way before you start making public announcements and things like that. So I think that that's a process. And then I also think when we're so polarized in the norms that are being set and the place for us to belong is within a politically partisan group, it's really important to start activating those other identities and those other spaces and platforms to be setting norms through other channels as well. So the other thing you were talking about, Tuzla, is it? I always think of Telsa somehow when you talk about Tuzla, but Tuzla (laughs) in the former Yugoslavia, and and you were saying that that what they did was to activate this identity as the old Tuzlans, and that somehow allowed you. So is that equivalent to what we can do around that in the United States? Is it to hope that sports rivalries become really, really (laughs) deep, and so actually your identity as an Oriole becomes way more important than... Oh, gosh. We're in trouble then. Well, you'd definitely be on the losing side of that particular... uh, (laughs) Just wait till next season. No. That was the first baseball joke I've ever made in public. There you go. Um, I'm slowly becoming an American. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is really important. And you see organizations that are out there that are creating a new brand and a new movement, and people want this to come together and to say, we're part of this thing, and it has an identity and it has a norm. And this is actually the work that I did in Kenya was we created a brand, CC Niamani, and people joined it, and they didn't have to get rid of their political opinion and affiliations to be part of it, but it had a norm of we're not going to be violent and we're going to do what it takes. But you also often have these pre-existing identities that can be activated. So in the case of Tusla, for example, or in the case of the Muslim community in Rwanda, this was a pre-existing religious identity and a geographic identity. And those identities were activated and made very salient. We're Tuslan. They commissioned a song. The mayor made speeches. The civic associations engaged. And it wasn't an easy thing, right? They activated that identity and it provided the space and the platform for people to come together and coordinate to prevent violence. They then threw out a 
Civil War had to manage a ton of different tensions, and you had different stakeholders managing things within their groups, but they did have this superordinate identity that was able to really bring them together. And when we look at this in the U.S., you can look at it every sort of vector that we think about. So you can think about how do you activate these movements. You can think about how do you support leaders that are by sector, for example, rather than by political party to start mm -hmm. to activate norms within a sector. You can think about how the media reports on things. Are they reporting on what Democrats and Republicans think? Or are they reporting along a whole other different set of variables so that you start to complicate how we even think about what are the quote-unquote sides here? Mm -hmm. And you start to create the space for people to sort of diversify their opinions. And you create a little breathing room for that nuance and for those people who might speak out to set much more positive norms against violence. So if I'm listening to this conversation, and I think it's been incredibly clarifying in my mind about some of these dynamics, and I want to act on it not just in terms of going towards other people and somehow trying to intervene in the social world, but just on myself. What questions should I ask myself, mm. you know, to make sure that I'm not complicit in some of those dangerous feedback loops? What forward should be a warning sign to me, but hang on a second, huh. you're engaging yourself in one of those potentially dangerous behaviors? Mm -hmm. It's really, really interesting, and I think a really important question. I mean, I think... One thing comes to these patterns of speech that I talked about, and I think we've seen them the most clearly in this country, activated in a very public way. They're not new narratives, but they're newly public in our political rhetoric at this moment. The narrative that that group is a threat, they're fundamentally different than us, not fully human, and we have to protect ourselves. So it's the defining of an other, but also the defining of a very narrow us that needs protection. Any of those narratives, I think it's very important to be cognizant and aware of them and aware of what they do, right? They mobilize a social pressure, they mobilize emotions like fear and anger, and so I think that the self-awareness around those dynamics, but I also think even just knowing that some of these feedback loops exist, let us question assumptions at any moment. What so if I just assumed about what's motivating that person mm -hmm. or how they see me? If I'm talking to somebody about an issue and I know that we're in this dynamic where it's going to be my team, your team, how do I ask a different type of question that says, and this is the question you might ask somebody else, like, how did you come to believe what you believe? What's the nuance? You know, if you're out of this team sports environment, start to deepen your own thinking about these different things. So basically try, yeah. whenever I think, hey, everything that the other side of political aisle does is evidence that they're dehumanizing me, they want to do harm to me, what motivates them to take this particular step is some larger strategic plan to really undermine my interests. I guess putting myself in their shoes and trying to understand you know, what within their own values, what within their own worldview maybe motivating them that's less pernicious than that? Well, it's probably hard to understand somebody if you're not talking to them, but even just to know that some of these feedback loops are at play and to know that these are the assumptions that we tend to make about each other. And I think most importantly, to moderate ourselves against going along with this type of rhetoric and ideas is very, very important. And on the action side, I think the awareness of the norms piece is incredibly important, how easy it is to just go along with norms and how scary it can be to speak up against them. And I think on that front, there's a level of self-awareness there. And I think that normal has an incredible power, right? It's what we perceive everyone else is doing, and it's what we might go along with accordingly. It's also what we get used to and what we start to think about as normal. And so I think being aware of that power of normal is very, very important so that we don't become complacent with it. And I think everyone should realize their normative power. What are the different groups that you're in? Who are the different people you have access to as we see these dynamics play out? And again, the polarization is a big risk factor, and I think that the type of rhetoric that we've enabled and allowed to sort of come into our political discourse is really problematic and actually endangering to many people in this country. And I think that when we hear that, to be willing to speak up, to be willing to ensure that it doesn't set a norm is also incredibly important.
Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Yasha. Great chatting. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.